now we will continue to worship. As we look at Leviticus chapter 16, if you open your Bibles there. I said last week, I think, that we were going to do the, the epilogue all in one. But you know, the sermon's not really done till 30 seconds ago. Uh, and so we are actually going to look at Leviticus chapter 16, verses 29 through 31. Uh, and we'll finish the epilogue next week. But I wanted to look at um, what I believe is a clear picture of the mercy and patience of the Lord. And so we will read Leviticus 16, verses 19 through 21 here. Um, uh, 29, I'm sorry. It's like, that's the wrong place. Leviticus 16, 29 through 31. This shall be a statute forever for you. In the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, you shall afflict your souls and do no work at all. Whether a native of your own country or a stranger who dwells among you. For on that day the priest shall make atonement for you to cleanse you, that you may be clean from all your sins before the Lord. It is a Sabbath of solemn rest for you, and you shall afflict your souls. It is a statute forever. First Baptist Church of Grey Gables, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures. Forever. Let's go to the Lord and thank Him for His word this morning. Gracious Father. We do thank you for your holy and inspired word. We thank you that it is powerful. Father, we thank you that your word transforms your people into the image of your son. That we become more and more like Christ as we better understand your word, having it applied to our hearts by the work of your spirit. Father, that's our prayer this morning as it is every single Sunday. That you would speak through your word that your people would have ears to hear, and that the Holy Spirit would do what the Holy Spirit does in sanctifying people through your word. We pray for any who do not know you, who may be among us, that your word, that your spirit would have its work in them as well, convicting of sin and drawing them to yourself and your Son, Jesus Christ. In all of this activity, it is our desire to honor and glorify you, because we know that where your truth is proclaimed, Father, You are honored and glorified by your people. So, Father, let that be our end this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. All right. If you're you're new here, we've been in this book of Leviticus for quite some time now. And it has been a tremendous blessing in my heart, I know. But before we actually dive into the text this morning, we just have three verses, but we we do need to do a little bit of review in order to make sure we're understanding what's going on in verses 29 through 31 in the context of Leviticus 16. So so two weeks ago, we were introduced to Leviticus chapter 16, and we went over a first couple verses and a little part of verse 3 of chapter 16 that contain that warning, right, to Aaron to, to not enter into God's presence whenever and however the high priest wanted. We saw the reason for that is that the way back to the Lord is dangerous because God is holy and just and people are sinful and rebellious. So the Lord must call. The Lord must be the one to invite. He must be the one who determines when someone comes into his presence. People could not enter the Holy of Holies however they desired. Of course, We saw that it must not only be according to the Lord's call, but also according to the Lord's leading. 
that it must be his way. We consider that now the only way into the Holy of Holies is through Jesus Christ, the way, the truth, and the life. And we must follow Jesus. We saw the call to come into the presence of God, that it goes out to all, and it's not really just an invitation, but a command to trust Jesus and follow him. And then last week, we explored the body of Leviticus chapter 16, what the instructions and the way into God's presence actually were. They consisted of several rituals and sacrifices that were provided by the Lord to make atonement for the people of God. We saw together how, how really a lot of it in the writer of Hebrews, how he interpreted all of those events in the light of Jesus Christ's life, death, and resurrection. How, how Jesus' ministry was the true and better day of atonement that gained access for us into the Holy of Holies. We saw at the heart of this day was that scapegoat ritual. That through the scapegoat ritual, the sins of the people were placed on the head of the goat. The goat was therefore taken away from the presence of God, as were the sins of Israel, so that Israel was not taken away from the presence of God. And, and of course, we understand and considered how Jesus Christ is the true and better scapegoat, bearing our sins away from us as far as, as the east is from the west. All of our sins, every one of them. And this week, again, we'll handle part of the epilogue. Really, I, I just want a laser beam focus on, on specifically verse 30. The big idea of verse 30, and I think this text, is that the Lord is patient and merciful towards his people. That's the main idea. That's the big idea here, is that the Lord is patient and merciful toward his people. And what we have in verses 29 through 31 is a chiasm. You've heard that a time or two, haven't you? All right, but, but this one's obvious. And I'm really, really excited to present it to you this morning as maybe the, the absolute clearest picture of a chiasm I've ever seen. Again, if you don't know what that is, if you're new to this and you're thinking we just keep saying that word, do you know what it means? Uh, yes, the chiasms were used as a teaching tool. It was a literary way of, of writing, a, a, a type of writing that was used to teach people and to aid them in memorization so they could memorize scripture better. But sometimes, just like this one here, it serves to emphasize the main point in a series of verses. And this is exactly what this one does, okay? So... Are you ready for this? We're going we're gonna to do this chiasm together. And I know you're just excited, right? Nobody gets more excited than hermeneutics in here, right? That's it? Right? Okay. Look at verse 29 with your Bibles open. Here's what I want you to do. If you, if you have a pen or you underline, do this, okay? Underline the chiasm verse, uh, starting in verse 29. Look at verse 29. It starts with, This shall be a statute forever for you. Underline a statute forever. In the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, you shall afflict your souls. Underline, you shall afflict your souls. Then it continues on, and do no work at all. Underline, and do no work. Wait, I didn't mean like you don't do any work after this, like don't stop, but just the words, and do no work. Whether a native of your own country or a stranger who dwells among you, and then look at verse 30. This is the center, which means the main idea. For on that day the priest shall make atonement for you, 
to cleanse you that you may be clean from all your sins before the Lord. Now, verse 31, are you ready? It is a Sabbath of solemn rest for you. Underline Sabbath of solemn rest. And you shall afflict your souls. Underline, you shall afflict your souls. It is a statute forever. Underline a statute forever. So, verse 29 and 31 parallel each other, but in reverse order. That's a chiasm, with the center being verse 30. So, in 29, you have statute forever, afflict your souls, do no work. Then the center, verse 30, main idea, meant to be emphasized. And then you come to verse 31, Sabbath of solemn rest, which is the same exact thing as do no work, right? And then, we're moving backwards now, uh, then afflict your souls in a statute forever. Clear as mud? All right, listen, the reason why I say this is, is because these are all throughout your scriptures. And as you, the priesthood of all believers, as you read your Bible for yourself... This is an instructional and helpful tool that will help you actually interpret the meaning of that verses. All right? Great. We're moving on. The take-home point is that the center text is what's meant to be emphasized in the mind of the Israelites as they heard this or read this. Right? Read it one more time with me, verse 30. For on that day, the priest shall make atonement for you to cleanse you that you may be clean from all your sins before the Lord. This is the purpose of the Day of Atonement. The Day of Atonement assured God's people of His patience, His mercy, and forgiveness. I want us to see that this morning. The Day of Atonement assured God's people of His patience, His mercy, and forgiveness. That should be number one in your outline. See, Israel's covenant Lord was merciful and gracious. He was not some tyrant who laid down the law and executed extreme prejudice against every transgression. Many come to the book of Leviticus and they they read it through superficially and and they kind of come away with that understanding that, man, that God of the Old Testament is an angry tyrant God. But that's quite the contrary. In fact, right here in, in chapter 16, the Day of Atonement demonstrates the Lord's steadfast love toward His people by forgiving them of all of their iniquities, all their transgressions, and all their sins. And and this is what really it's all about. Ultimately, this statement is a confirmation that the Lord is gracious and merciful, long-suffering, abounding in goodness and truth. In fact, this was a timely and precious reminder for Israel. Uh, This understanding of giving of the Day of Atonement was indeed a precious and timely reminder. Remember, Remember how this chapter began? Nadab and Abihu, right? That that reminder, the sons of Aaron who were consumed by the fire of the Lord's judgment for attempting to enter the Lord's presence unprepared and uninvited. In fact, if you look at chapter 16, verse 1, it says, Now the Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron. So, So actually, this giving of the Day of Atonement most likely happened immediately following the Nadab and Abihu incident. I know it's separated by several chapters of purification law, but it's more intent on teaching the content, not the chronological order. And so it doesn't mean that this didn't happen after, but I think that verse tells us this happened right after the deaths of Nadab and Abihu. And they, 
those deaths may have very well caused many to question the patience and mercy of God. In fact, that may even have an effect on us as we read account like that. And so, so in light of that event, the giving of the Day of Atonement would have been a helpful reassurance of the Lord's patience and mercy. How simple but powerful it would be to hear the promise that Israel would be clean before the Lord from all their sins. The Lord would accept their sacrifices on the Day of Atonement and forgive all of their iniquities, transgressions, and sins. They would be cleansed away. But but notice, notice why the Lord gives Israel the Day of Atonement. Don't miss this. The Lord does not say, if you guys sin against me. If you transgress me, if you fall short of my laws, then here is the Day of Atonement. Instead, he says, when you sin against me, when you transgress my holy laws. The Lord gave Israel the Day of Atonement because of their uncleanness, not in the case of it. It's important for us to understand the Lord gave Israel the Day of Atonement because of their uncleanness, not in the case of it. In verse 16, it states the Day of Atonement was necessary. Leviticus 16, 16, it says, Because of the uncleanness of the children of Israel and because of their transgressions for all their sins. See, the Day of Atonement was necessary year after year because year after year the people would be unfaithful to their covenant promises. Day after day, their tendency would be to stray to grumble, to become lazy in their obligations and forsake their covenant Lord. Hour by hour, the unholy dust of uncleanness would build, it would mound, and the offensive transgressions would increase. The defilement of sin would gather, and the Lord knew this. The Lord knew that they were a stiff-necked people. He knew they would defile His sanctuary with their uncleanness. He knew that they would grumble and complain constantly. And even so, he chose and loved them. Because of their sin, they received the Day of Atonement, not in case they sinned. In fact, let me be clear. The only reason that we're here today, I mean, not just here in this building by God's grace, but alive, is because of the patience and the mercy of the Lord. I mean, pause and think about that. The Lord showed His patience and mercy in the Garden of Eden when He delayed the death sentence of Adam and Eve so that humanity would not be cut off forever. We're here today because of that patience and mercy. The Lord displayed patience and mercy at the Tower of Babel when He scattered instead of destroyed so His plan for humanity would not be undone. We're here today because of that patience and And mercy, I mean, listen, even after the judgment of Israel, the nation of Israel, Jeremiah, that Old Testament prophet, was able to confess in Lamentations chapter 3, verses 22 through 23, words we know well, well, through the Lord's mercies, we are not consumed because his compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. He proclaims and confesses in the midst of ruins. That's what Jeremiah says. sees everything falling apart. And he still knows the Lord has been abundantly patient and mercy with covenant Israel. 
Now, the Lord's patience and mercy have been revealed every single day that sinful people have continued to enjoy the gift of life while deserving the penalty of death. You ever want to question the patience and mercy of God, you need to to read that, to know that the Lord's patience and mercy have been revealed every single day that sinful people have continued to enjoy the gift of life while deserving the penalty of death. Every single day. For as the Apostle Peter would later write in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, the Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Church family, this is who our God is. He is patient, long-suffering, accommodating, merciful, gracious, and does not deal with His people as their sins deserve. If you're assured of that this morning, I mean, if you're really convinced that this is God's disposition toward His people, then you understand this text. That indeed our God is merciful and gracious, long-suffering, abounding in goodness and in truth. Now, I continue to use that language, that God is merciful and gracious, long-suffering, abounding in goodness and truth, because I believe something about this Day of Atonement. I believe that the Day of Atonement is actually meant to be a demonstration of God's revelation of Himself to Moses on Mount Sinai. I want you to see that. All right, so this is going to take some work. We okay? Middle of the sermon, probably middle of the sermon. Let's go like closer to the beginning, middle of the sermon. We might not be there. We're doing okay. This is going to take some work, okay? We need to see this. It's going to require your Bibles open. The Day of Atonement is a demonstration of what the Lord revealed about Himself in Exodus 34. We're going to work together to see what Leviticus 16 is. The Day of Atonement, this picture, is itself a picture of what the Lord proclaimed to Moses in Exodus. So go ahead and and keep your place in Leviticus 16. Just flip over one book, right? Yes, one book to Exodus 34. In fact, turn to Exodus 34, verses 6 through 7. While you do that, bear with me. I'm going to give you a little bit of background, so we're just taking this out of... Uh, the middle of the book. Those who aren't familiar what's happening in the context here, in Exodus chapter 32, we have that famous golden calf incident. Everybody knows that, right? Israel and asked Aaron to make gods for them because Moses was hanging out on Mount Sinai a little too long for his liking. They grew impatient. They wanted some gods to worship. And so Aaron obliges them. He fashions a golden calf for them to worship It goes without saying that that's a very bad idea, right? It was open, egregious, sinful rebellion against the God who had just rescued them from Egypt. And the end result was about 3,000 men that died that day and even more that perished from a plague that broke out. Thousands received a penalty due to their guilt. But... Moses intercedes and finds favor with the Lord. The the patience and mercy of God are again demonstrated by the postponement of the judgment of Israel. This is important to understand. The Lord threatened to destroy all of Israel because of their treason. They were implicated in the false worship of a false god. The Lord threatened to destroy all but Moses. He was going to start over a new humanity with Moses But Moses interceded, and the Lord spared him by his mercy. And right at the end of that episode, 
we come to one of the most incredible events recorded in all of the Old Testament. That's where I want us to focus our attention for just a moment. Moses asked the Lord something. Moses asked the Lord to reveal the Lord's glory to him. And the Lord agrees. So in Exodus 34, we have a record of God's revelation of his own glory to Moses. And here's what he says. Exodus 34, verses 6 through 7. And the Lord passed before him, being Moses, and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Sound familiar? By no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. Church family, this is one of the most significant events in all of the Old Testament that we rarely talk about. The Lord reveals His glory to Moses. So in our argument, remember, is in Leviticus 16, this Day of Atonement is a demonstration, an outworking of that revelation. See, in Exodus 34, the Lord proclaims to Moses that He is indeed merciful and gracious, long-suffering, abounding in goodness and in truth. And in Leviticus 16, He demonstrates... That He is merciful, He is gracious, He is long-suffering, and He is abounding in goodness and truth. Don't miss this. I'm not just randomly picking these two texts, by the way. The very language found in the revelation of the Lord in Exodus 34 is also found in Leviticus 16. We noted it. Right? So, so just put one finger on Exodus 34, verse 7, and place your other finger... In Leviticus chapter 16, verse 21. Okay? Put your eyes on this. Let's see it together. We'll start with Exodus 34, 7. It says, Keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Okay? Stop there. Now back to Leviticus chapter 16, verse 21. Here they are implementing the scapegoat ritual. And Aaron is commanded to lay his hands on the head of the goat. And then what is he to do? Confess over it all the iniquities of the children of Israel and all their transgressions concerning all their sins. Now, we're familiar with that language, but the reality is this language of transgressions, iniquity, and sins stated specifically that way is not as common as you might think in the Bible. Verse 21 is part of that scapegoat ritual that lies at the very heart of the Day of Atonement. We're meant to hear an echo of what the Lord revealed about Himself all the way back in Exodus to Moses on Mount Sinai. The Lord has revealed who He is, a merciful and gracious God, and in the Day of Atonement, He proves it. Do you see this? The Lord's proclamation to Moses was not simply lip service. The Lord is merciful, gracious, slow to anger, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth. And the day of atonement is exhibit A of that mercy, grace, and patience. In case the parallel language is not enough for you, I want to point out one more detail that connects both of these passages. The Lord's proclamation of His long-suffering, His grace and mercy, it comes on the heels of the golden calf incident, right? Likewise... The demonstration, the picture of God's mercy and grace comes on the heels of the next major failure in Israel. In between the golden calf incident and Nadab and Abihu, 
we actually have relative success within the fellowship between God and His people Israel. Then we have a major failure in Nadab and Abihu, followed by a demonstration of what God proclaimed after their last failure. Through the rites and rituals of the Day of Atonement and preeminently through the promise that God's people would be clean from all their sin, the Lord proves Himself to be a merciful God who is long-suffering. In fact, the whole sacrificial system is an outworking of God's long-suffering and mercy. But the Day of Atonement is the ultimate picture of the revelation of His patience and undeserving forgiveness. That's why it was known as the Day But this brings us to another important consideration, a question I asked myself this week. If this is the case, right? if the Lord is demonstrating through the Day of Atonement that He is merciful and gracious, long-suffering, abounding in goodness and truth, what about the thousands that died right before those words were spoken to Moses on Mount Sinai? What about Nadab and Abihu? What I mean is, where was the Lord's long-suffering and mercy when Nadab and Abihu offered strange fire to the Lord? Or how was the Lord long-suffering and merciful towards the thousands that died that day by the sword in Israel or received the plague and the golden calf incident? Asked another way, What makes the thousands who died for their iniquities, transgressions, and sin with the golden calf different from the thousands who received forgiveness for their iniquity, transgressions, and sin with the golden calf? What separates Nadab and Abihu from Aaron? Nadab and Abihu attempted to enter the Lord's presence uninvited and unprepared. That is really bad. We looked at that. We know that that's really bad. We consider the text. But Aaron Aaron fashioned an idol for the people of Israel to worship. Then he lied about it when Moses approached him. I I don't know, Moses. The thing just jumped right out of the fire. I was just standing here doing nothing. And then a golden calf appeared in the fire. Was that not as bad? Why wasn't Aaron consumed with fire? I mean, people will certainly be struck down for less obvious transgressions than that. To give you an example, you remember 2 Samuel, right? Our man Uzzah? You remember Uzzah? He dies immediately. Why? Because he sticks his hand out ready to steady the ark. If you were calling the shots, which one received mercy and which one receives judgment? Uzzah, who's trying to keep the ark from touching the ground? Or David? who committed adultery and murder and lied over and over again about it. Listen, before we go any further, I want to assure you something. It is okay to ask these questions. It is good to ask these questions. We have to ask these questions. If we don't deal with this question, then we will inevitably have a false conception of who God is. God will either be a holy and just God who rules with an iron fist. The type of God who consumes people with fire because they step out of line. Or who throws the sword against them anytime there is the slightest minor infraction. Or our God will be a merciful or gracious God. But a God who is unwilling, maybe even unable to punish sin. Because that seems harsh or unloving. If we stumble... 
Every time we read that God brought judgment against somebody, or if we read God didn't bring judgment against someone, we think he should have. Either way, there is a fundamental truth missing from our theology. The truth is actually found in Exodus 33. See, before the Lord reveals his glory to Moses, he reveals his intention in doing so in chapter 33. He says this in Exodus 33, 19. Then he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. What separates the thousands who incur the penalty of sin from the thousands who receive the steadfast love of the Lord? Friends, the answer is the sovereign grace and mercy of God. Why was Aaron spared while Nadab and Abihu were consumed with the fires of judgment? The sovereign grace and mercy of God. Period. See, here's what we do. This is why we struggle with this. is because we are either prone to either ignore the tension completely or we formulate some sort of response that really places the reasons behind the mercy of the Lord on the shoulders of people and not in the hands of God. Our minds want to, desperately, you're feeling it now, aren't you? Our minds want to assume that the sin of Nadab and Abihu are somehow worse than the sin of Aaron. The friend, a review of the details will not allow that interpretation. It just won't stand. It's simply not true. Again, why was Uzzah struck dead for touching the ark while David, the adulterer and murderer, receives the forgiveness of the Lord? The only biblical answer is the sovereign mercy and grace of the Lord. That answer does not lie in something inherent in the person, but inherent in God. Our Lord is merciful and gracious to whom He will be merciful and gracious. And and here's what we learn from all of this. Hear this. We learn that God exercises His mercy and His judgment according to His good, perfect, and pleasing will for His own glory. Say it again. God exercises His mercy and His judgment according to His good, perfect, and pleasing will for His own glory. In fact, friends, this is what makes mercy merciful. This is what makes grace gracious. God does not owe it to anyone. The Lord does not owe you, nor does He need to show you mercy. And if He didn't, it would remove one iota of His holiness. See, mercy is undeserved forgiveness. That's what mercy is. In fact, I was reading this this week. I put this in the reading. It's nowhere near the point of the text in Matthew 18, but I just, I thought about it. In the king in Jesus' parable of the unmerciful servant, right? The unforgiving servant. The one that, that, that received mercy, but they didn't show it, right? You remember them? The king in that parable, let me ask you, 
You, you know that he didn't have to show mercy, right? Just in case you're not familiar with the parable, the, the servant owes an unfathomable amount of money to a king. He goes before him. The king forgives his debts. The point of the parable is really about a servant who's been forgiven much, only to go and choke someone out who owed him a small amount. He sends that one away to prison until he can pay the full debt. And eventually, the unmerciful servant is brought before the king. That's the parable I'm referring to. But listen, my point is, the king in that parable, hear me, the king would have been no less merciful if he demanded payment on the spot. It would not have been the parable of the unmerciful king. If he demanded the debt be paid in full, he would still be a merciful king. It was his prerogative to demand full restitution or forgive the debt. Likewise, it is not unmerciful for God to judge guilt. That is not unmerciful. After all, in the same verse we've been looking at, Exodus 34, verse 7, God told Moses that he would buy no means clear the guilty. In reality, here's where we struggle. In reality, it comes from a core misunderstanding because judgment and wrath is what every last person deserves. Our confusion, our struggling with this passage, I I promise you, it comes from us really not believing this. In reality... Judgment and wrath is what every last person deserves. It's not what we want to hear. Our nature wants to hear that somehow we deserve God's favor, grace, mercy, and all people do. That's why it's so hard for us to see the judgment of God fall because we don't really believe it's what we deserve. But we do. Aaron, as much as Nadab and Abihu... David as much as Uzzah. Israel as much as the Canaanites. Here's the bottom line, friends. Judgment is ordinary. But grace is amazing. This is what we need to know. Judgment is ordinary, but that's what makes grace so amazing. We we clearly see the Day of Atonement was a demonstration of God's sovereign patience and mercy. He says that you may be clean from all your sins before the Lord. That was the purpose of the Day of Atonement. It was God being gracious to whom He would be gracious and God showing mercy on whom He would show mercy. But you know we can't stop there, can we? For if the Day of Atonement was a depiction of the grace, mercy, and steadfast love of God... Then, friends, how much more the day of Calvary. The Lord's long-suffering and mercy towards rebellious sinners was ultimately and finally demonstrated as Jesus Christ offered His blood so that we would be clean before the Lord from all of our sin. We considered that at length last week, but I want us to remind us. At the cross of Jesus Christ, you may be clean from all your sins before the Lord became You are clean before the Lord from all your sins. That's what we read in our time of confession, wasn't it? Brother Brad read, he didn't read 1 John 1, 7, but 1, 8. But 1, 7 says, John's first epistle, the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. We know that. So, 1 John 1, 9, 
If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Christian, rest assured in the long-suffering and mercy of the Lord towards His people. But listen to me. If you're not following the Lord Jesus Christ, you will not know the mercy of God when Christ returns. I implore you, I beg you, if you know yourself to not know Christ and you're sitting here today, repent of your rebellion. Trust in Christ. Follow Him, for He is our only hope for mercy. In conclusion, listen, next week, Lord willing, we'll come to understand how Israel was to respond to the Day of Atonement. So we'll be back here in verses 29 through 34. But today, by way of application, I simply want to do this. I'm going to ask you, would you pray that the Lord would renew our minds and give us worshipful hearts that long to give Him praise and honor that He deserves? For the Lord indeed is merciful and gracious, long-suffering, abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. Christian, why have you been shown mercy and grace? Why has the Lord shown you steadfast love, forgiving your iniquity, transgression, and sin? How have you escaped the penalty due your guilt? Only one way, by the sovereign grace and mercy of the Lord. Because the Lord will be gracious to whom he will be gracious and will have compassion on whom he will, will show compassion. May the Lord renew your minds and fill our hearts with worship. Would you stand as we close with a word of prayer? Gracious Father, how hard it is to think rightly about these things. Lord, we'll see next week very clearly from the text how we're prone to the subtleties of pride. How prone we are to work to merit something before your eyes. How prone we are to believe that in some way you really must have seen something special in us. Father, forgive us. For you show mercy on whom you will show mercy. And though that may be hard for us to comprehend, and certainly we don't know the intricacies of that, Lord, we do know this. To you be all honor, glory, and praise. We pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Amen. Let's sing a hymn in response together. Church, you may be seated. So we come to our time of invitation. First and foremost to the church, if, if this is... Not only our time that we would reflect and renew our minds according to the word of how God has chosen to reveal himself through his own word. We would reflect and, and bring forth the heart of greater worship.
But I, I think another application would simply be if this is the definition of mercy and grace, then it ought to be our definition to show mercy and grace to each other. The reality is we have a misunderstanding of what mercy and grace is. We say we're offering grace and we say we're offering mercy, but it's deserved or earned. God has not dealt with you that way, friend. In no way. So, so to use those terms is to understand that as you show grace and mercy, you do it undeserved. But the only reason you're able to is because you have been shown grace and mercy from a long-suffering God who is abounding in goodness and truth. That it should be the thing that empowers you when you recognize the beauty that is this doctrine and who God is, and you recognize there was nothing that you brought to the table. He, he didn't look and see, wow, you, you are super special. Well, you know what? I need, I need him. He'd be great to have on my team. Friends, all you brought was your sin deserving of his eternal wrath. And he changed your heart and made you his child. So that now you are inheriting the kingdom. Friends, if that doesn't drive you to show grace and mercy to everyone with the opportunity to share them with the gospel, I don't know what will. Maybe you're here this morning and you're asking this question that I've asked, often asked myself. How do you know if I'm one of those that he's shown mercy to? Friend, hear this. You hearing the gospel message right here is an act of mercy and grace from our God. If your heart is being stirred in any way to respond to this message, that's grace and mercy. And the only way we really know is by those who truly repent and believe and begin to bear the fruit of one who's been shown mercy and grace. So if you're here this morning, listen, it, it's not about, well, I just, I just hope I'm, I belong to the Lord. I hope I'm one of those he showed mercy to. Friend, if you're hearing this message, here's what you need to do. Repent of your sins. Call out to the Lord and ask him to show you mercy. And the Bible declares that when you do, he's faithful. So if you're hearing this and your heart is stirred, your answer, your peace comes from confessing your sins to an almighty God, repenting, believing, and turning from your sins to trust in Him. If that's happened to you today, then may it be. If you know for a fact the Lord has spoken to you, He's convicted you of sin, that in itself is an assurance that you've been shown mercy. So take this opportunity, please. If you're here this morning, Pastor Justin will be down front. We'll have men down front. Respond to this gospel message that calls you to recognize yourself as a sinner, to acknowledge that Christ died on the cross for sinners like you, and to trust in Him and His finished work for salvation. And today, you can rest assured that you belong to the King, and yet it was nothing because of what you've done. It was His work in the sovereign grace and mercy. However the Lord's calling you to respond, I pray that you will.